0: based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash eppendorf to apply today. This is a science podcast for December 2nd, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week I interview journalists and scientists that publish in Science and the sister journals. First up this week, we explore the genetic history of Jews in Europe. Contributing correspondent Andrew Curry talks about researchers that are working with rabbis and the local Jewish community to try and apply new techniques to study remains respectfully in a medieval Jewish cemetery in Germany. We also have a story on how much magma has accumulated inside Yellowstone National Park's supervolcano. Producer Megan Cantwell chats with researcher Ross McGuire about using supercomputers to get a clearer picture of the volcanic system's subsurface. Although this new study does show more magma than previous estimates, it's still not nearly enough for an eruption anytime soon. We're going to talk about new insights into the genetic history of Jews in Europe. This research area hasn't actually gotten a lot of traction in the past because of pretty serious community concerns about disturbing the remains of Jewish people. Basically restrictions on doing anything destructive. So ancient DNA, isotopic analysis are off the table. That means that genetic information about the history of this population has mostly been drawn from modern living members of the group. But that leaves gaps in the history of Jewish populations and migrations in and around Europe. Now we have contributing correspondent Andrew Curry. We're going to talk about his story on a medieval Jewish cemetery in Erfurt, Germany that was being moved. And the researchers had a special request to study the remains. So Andrew, this all started with an excavation in a cemetery thought to date back to medieval times. Did the researchers know these were the remains of Jewish people? What led to this They suspected
1: that there was something there. What happened was this community had, as many medieval Jewish communities did in Europe, a lot of ups and downs, some of the downs pretty horrific. There was a pogrom, a massacre in 1349, and the community was wiped out. And then five years later, the community came back and thrived for about a 100 years. They built a cemetery. And then in the mid 1400s, they were kicked out of town again. And the city built a huge granary on top of the cemetery. But there were parts of the cemetery that weren't built over. And people had always left them alone, at least in modern times, because the Jewish faith discourages strongly disturbing the dead. So there was some real reservations in terms of exploring for the sake of exploration.
0: This pogrom that you talk about in your story, the one in 1349 in Erfurt, was that because of rumors that Black Death was brought about by Jewish people?
1: Some merchants who probably owed money to Jewish lenders used this lie that had been spreading around Europe that Jews were somehow responsible for spreading the Black Death to whip up people and massacre their neighbors what i was surprised by but talking to historians it turns out this is it wasn't uncommon because the local authorities had given their authorization for jews to live in the city the authorities were outraged that this had happened and forced the city to basically pay restitution and build a new synagogue and create the conditions that would encourage jews to come back
0: and they did five years later. And lasted for about what a hundred years,
1: and then this permission, and this was a fact of medieval life that all kinds of groups were given permission from the town authorities to live there, and that permission could be revoked. And in the mid14 hundreds, that permission was revoked, and the Jews were forced to leave and settle elsewhere.
0: What led to this excavation then of a medieval Jewish cemetery, if there's rules around disturbing Jewish remains?
1: What kicked it off? initially was in 2011 the city turned this 4 500 year old stone granary into a parking garage and they needed to build a ramp to get into the parking garage so they had to build on what had been the cemetery and they called in archaeologists to dig in advance of the construction work and in conjunction with the local Jewish community they excavated parts of the cemetery for the first time since 1450, and they found about 50 skeletons in a pretty small area, about 150 square meters.
0: So, as I mentioned before, there's only so much you can do as an archaeologist working on an excavation on a Jewish cemetery. What did the researchers end up doing?
1: They went ahead with non-invasive analyses, measuring the bones, trying to determine they male or female, age, stuff like that. And around the same time as they were finishing these non invasive analyses, a geneticist in Israel had started to look for ways to get ancient DNA from the bones of Jews in a way that would be okay with the Jewish faith.
0: Right. It's been difficult to study the history of these people because the edict against disturbing the graves and the bodies is pretty strong.
1: Yeah. And a bunch of modern scientific archaeological techniques like ancient DNA, radiocarbon dating, isotopic analysis, which looks at sort of the chemistry of teeth and bones, all required destroying tiny bits of bone. And so most Jewish authorities had been reluctant or refused to give permission to do analyses like that. And this geneticist went to a rabbi and explained What he was looking for. And then the rabbi kind of looked into the teachings and Jewish legal and religious literature and came to the conclusion that teeth, because they fall out over the course of your life, sometimes multiple times, don't count as part of the body in the same way that bones do. And so if they were found in the course of something else, then it would be okay to sample loose teeth
0: that really changed what could be learned from it. it if suddenly you had not just 50 sets of bones but you now had access to all these kind of modern tools
1: exactly so they they then went to the Jewish community in Erfurt and explained the rabbis reasoning the Jewish community gave that this team permission and that has enabled really the yeah. biggest most in-depth look at the genetics and ancestry of medieval Jews ever. I really like the way David Reich, who's a co-author on the study and a geneticist at Harvard, described teeth as deciduous. They're like leaves. They fall out naturally over the course of your life. And that helped create this workaround to the prohibition.
0: What were some of the big questions that the geneticists, the archaeologists were hoping to answer now that they have access to these more advanced tools? Today
1: there's a Jewish population called the Ashkenazi and there's I think 8 or 9 million Ashkenazi in the world and all the Ashkenazi living today are very closely interrelated because the the founding population was very small so at some point in the last 2000 years there was a really small number of people who have a lot of descendants today and because of that there are a lot of genetic diseases that Ashkenazi Jews are more susceptible to their stretches of DNA that are very similar. And what geneticists wanted to know was when did that small founding population take place? When did they arrive in Europe? When did that, geneticists call it a bottleneck, when did that bottleneck occur?
0: And there's unfortunately a lot of opportunities for something like that to have happened to the Jewish population in Europe. We've talked already about in Erfurt alone, there were two different times where the people were eliminated from their town.
1: Right, so one of the questions was, a number of researchers thought because of this history of violence and persecution in the 1300s and 1400s, around the time of the Black Death, which Jews were falsely accused of spreading at the time, The first crusades, which also whipped up a lot of anti Semitism, that maybe this founding population, this bottleneck occurred because people were killed and there were so few people left. And another argument was maybe it happened before when a really small number of a few families, say, emigrated in the eight or nine hundreds. They had come over the Alps from Italy to central Germany and then had a lot of success in big families spreading out all over. But because the initial group was so small, you see the similar founding effects.
0: We have kind of two theories here on the origin of the bottleneck. So back at Airfort, were they able to use teeth from these people to figure out which one of these is more likely to have happened?
1: They were. They got amazing results, both Within the cemetery, they could see family relationships, they could see that people had migrated from all over Europe back to Erfurt, but then they also could see that by the time people started dying and being buried in the cemetery in the 1350s, this bottleneck already existed. These genetic mutations were already there in the same proportions that you see them in Ashkenazi Jews today, which told the geneticists that Whatever happened had happened several centuries or more before this Airfort cemetery was founded. And that supports the second hypothesis that they arrived in the eight or nine hundreds.
0: So, what else did they learn about the people who lived at this time in this place?
1: They had clues from the teeth and the chemistry that people had been born or grown up far from Airfort and then moved there. Then their children had been raised in air force so you might have had some of the founding members of this second community and then they could also tell that regardless of where they came from everybody was buried in in a similar way so there was a pretty strong cultural identity among ashkenazi jews regardless of where they came from in europe that knit them together in this new place
0: now that this study has been done and decision to look into teeth or genetic and chemical information. Is this going to kind of open up the study of the history of these people?
1: The co-authors on this study hope so. One of the interesting things they said was: in Judaism, there's no central authority. There's no pope who can make a decision that's valid for all Jews. So this rabbi made a good case, and the community agreed. And the lead author, whose name is Shai Karmi, he's a geneticist at Hebrew University in Israel, hopes that it can be a model for other cemeteries. It's not a blank check because one of the key elements is you can't go looking for these things. But if they were to be found in the course of rescue excavations or other studies, then it does open this potential model for similar work.
0: They have to move all these graves for the parking ramp. But There's still a synagogue here in this space. Is that going to be protected from development?
1: So geographically, they're separate. Jews in the Middle Ages, I think culturally, Jews put their cemetery outside of town. Whereas I was surprised when I visited Erfurt because the synagogue, a lot of the Jewish houses that they know from tax records, the ritual bath, are all extremely central. You know, you can see city hall over the rooftop and the synagogue was protected because it adjoined several other buildings and it was repurposed later. So Jewish life in the Middle Ages was really physically and culturally central in Erfurt. And that's one of the things that they they hope to further expand on. The, the city has applied for UNESCO World Heritage status for it's Jewish medieval history. And the synagogue is part of that. It's the oldest intact synagogue in Europe.
0: Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you. It was really fun to be here. Andrew Curry is a contributing correspondent at Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for producer Megan Cantwell's interview with Ross McGuire an assistant professor in the geology department at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. They talk about measuring magma accumulation beneath Yellowstone caldera. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's
2: A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Yellowstone National Park in the western United States has many hallmark attractions. There are hot springs with deep, vibrant colors and geysers that can shoot water over 90 meters high. But one of the most interesting features is not something you can see during your visit. It's an expansive volcanic system underneath your feet. This week in science, Ross McGuire and colleagues discuss their research, which illuminates the magma accumulation underneath the Yellowstone caldera. Thanks so much for joining me, Ross.
3: Yep, happy to be here.
2: So I wanted to start with just getting a sense for the power of this volcano. Of course, it hasn't erupted in recent years, but what do researchers know about what past eruptions have been like?
3: Yellowstone has a a fascinating eruptive history. Many people may know that it can erupt sort of explosively, but it also has more effusive eruptions as well. It's actually been sort of sitting dormant for roughly 70,000 years is the last time there have been minor flows. Most volcanic eruptions are typically of that style. The last time we've had a a large-scale caldera forming explosive eruptions was roughly 630,000 years ago. And that eruption formed the current caldera that forms much of Yellowstone National Park.
2: Is there a sort of life cycle or frequency in which these more eruptive episodes happen?
3: Over 10 million years, there's been a cycle of kind of volcanic quiescence uh, followed by punctuated explosive or effusive eruptions. We're sort of interested in the magmatic system because understanding the contemporary magma reservoir can help us understand the life cycle of what may happen in the future.
2: For the past 70,000 or so years, it's been pretty quiet. Do we know right now what stage of the life cycle Yellowstone is at right now?
3: That's really kind of the subject of a lot of research. For example, that's the type of question that motivates us to understand more about the subsurface structure, which is what work like the paper that we're discussing today is trying to address.
2: Let's get to the paper. Could you talk about how exactly your team got this image of the subsurface? You're using this approach called seismic tomography. How exactly does this technique work to get an image of the subsurface since we can't see it with our eyes above ground?
3: Seismic tomography is a technique that's actually very analogous to medical imaging. People may be familiar with CT scanning to image tissues or bones in our body. The T in CT scanning actually means tomography. Whereas in medical imaging, we're inferring the interior of our bodies. In seismic tomography, we're actually Able to image variations in the subsurface in terms of the speed at which seismic waves travel at. So, by kind of mapping out in three dimensions the seismic wave speed variations, we're able to make geological inferences about the materials that have those seismic wave speeds. And in particular, when applied to Yellowstone or other magmatic systems, this approach can be particularly powerful because we know that regions of partial melt or magma accumulations in the crust will slow down seismic waves. So that's sort of what we're looking for when we're trying to map out magma in the subsurface is we're looking for anomalies where seismic waves travel much slower than sort of the background rocks in the subsurface. The technique that we're using seismic tomography is basically a way of imaging the 3D variation of seismic waves, uh, wave speed in the subsurface.
2: So the kind of information you can learn about the material, is this what the actual composition of the magma and the rock is in terms of like mineral components? Or is it more so just whether it's liquid or whether it's semi-liquid or whether it's a hard subsurface?
3: The actual images themselves are basically a model of the absolute wave speeds of the subsurface. In, In this case, Uh, we're looking at the wave speed variation at which S waves travel. So there's P waves and there's S waves, P waves being sort of compressional vibrations and S waves being shear waves, sometimes called secondary waves. We have a model of the S wave structure in the subsurface, and we're able to relate that to not only the, the regions of where we have solids versus liquids, but it can also allow us to infer the sort of composition of the rocks And in particular, in this study, we're interested in understanding the sort of concentrations of melt in the subsurface.
2: And there have been some previous studies that have taken a similar approach to try to understand what exactly is going on in the subsurface of Yellowstone. And you mentioned in your paper that it's a little bit tricky to characterize these melt-rich zones. So what kind of different approach did you take in your research to be able to get a better handle on that?
3: there have been numerous studies at Yellowstone using similar seismic tomography approaches. In the past, many of these studies have used sort of simplified physics to approximate how seismic waves travel through the subsurface. So in our approach, Rather than take a simplified approximation of how waves travel through the subsurface, we actually use a technique that harnesses supercomputing so that we're accurately able to simulate the physics of wave propagation. And it turns out that allows us to kind of sharpen up our images of the subsurface.
2: Has this sort of approach been used to image other areas or is Yellowstone the first area where you're using supercomputers and not more of an approximation?
3: Yeah, so it's a relatively new approach. It's not the first application. Some of the first applications have been done over a decade ago, actually, but it's been an evolving method that has been found more and more applications. As supercomputers become faster and more powerful, it's becoming more possible for scientists to be a little bit more ambitious with the projects that they're coming up with, or the the targets that they have for imaging. It has been actually applied Kind of at the local crustal scale in other locations such as Southern California. There's actually models of the whole Earth based on this approach that we call full waveform tomography, although not at the sort of resolution that we're able to achieve at the local scale or, or the scale at a particular location such as Yellowstone.
2: Based on the images that your team was able to create, what exactly did you learn about the size of the magma reservoir that's underneath the Yellowstone caldera?
3: We've known for a while that. Yellowstone does have a crustal magmatic system, but these previous studies, these previous tomography models or images of the subsurface have had relatively modest anomalies that have led us to believe that Yellowstone's magmatic system contains only sort of small melt fractions. Typically the numbers that you might see published are something like five to 10% melt Instead of thinking of the melt as being concentrated in um, one single reservoir, like a big tank of magma, we think that melt is sort of uniformly distributed at grain boundaries. With our new model, we find that the seismic anomaly associated with Yellowstone's magmatic system is actually much stronger. In terms of the relative percent anomaly, the amount that shear waves are being slowed down, the anomaly strength is roughly three times as large as previous images have shown. And that would equate to partial melt fractions between roughly 16 and 20 percent. So around twice as much melt as was previously thought is kind of what we infer from our new model.
2: How exactly is this magma distributed underneath the caldera?
3: This is sort of a subject of ongoing research. With our imaging we're kind of seeing a volumetrically average picture of Yellowstone's subsurface. And we are actually not able to tell for sure how the melt might be distributed. So there, it's possible that there are regions where the melt is more concentrated, sort of in geologic structures like sills or other kinds of pods or lenses of melt, or less concentrated. If we kind of assume that the melt is broadly distributed, That's how we can come up with these numbers like 16 or 20% melt.
2: Based on this research, does this change where we think the stage of the supervolcano's life cycle is?
3: We think that although we can see that there's more magma in the subsurface, we still don't think that it's close to where it would need to be for an eruption. It's possible that there may be more melt in other places that we're not seeing. It's just sort of beyond the resolution of using the techniques we've used in the past so this number of roughly 20 percent melt if that's broadly distributed in the subsurface that's still well below the sort of critical threshold we might expect where you go from having melt kind of distributed along grain boundaries to really kind of a soup where we have a lot of melt that's mostly liquid with a lower crystal content that we would expect to be able to migrate rapidly in the subsurface
2: what is the kind of time scale that this changes over for right now if it's around 20% melt? Is there kind of an anticipated rate for how that melt will change or is it very quick period of time where it'll accumulate together and potentially create an eruptive episode?
3: It's hard to say. So some of the processes that we may expect to concentrate melt can occur over a relatively long periods. So they can be things like Tectonic deformations or new injections of melt into the subsurface or into the magmatic system. And they're not likely to happen instantaneously. They likely would be processes that would be able to be monitored with geophysical equipment at Yellowstone. So, for example, if there was some new injection of melt into the system, we would likely be able to capture that using other techniques besides seismic tomography.
2: The technique that you use to get these images of the subsurface of Yellowstone can also be used to understand other volcanic systems like Mauna Loa in Hawaii or Mount Vesuvius in Italy. What's next on your team's list of places to image with this technique?
3: One area where myself and colleagues are focusing on is Valles Caldera in New Mexico, which is actually sort of another one of these volcanoes that has a history of explosive eruptions. And I think through using full waveform imaging and um, new seismic data sets, we should be able to improve our pictures of, of that particular system as well.
2: Great. I look forward to seeing that. Well, thank you so much, Ross. My pleasure. Ross McGuire is an assistant professor in the geology department at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. You can find a link to his paper at science.org podcasts.
0: And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast.
2: If you have any comments or
0: suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot slash join.